I would like to describe a field in which little has been done, but in which an enormous amount can be done. This field is not quite the same as the others in that it will tell us little of fundamental physics, but it will tell us much about the strange phenomena that occur just below our perception. In contrast to the natural philosophers of the past, the scientists of this field delve into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. Their quest is to understand and create the imperceptible. After all, there is plenty of room at the bottom. Hello and welcome to the Materialism Podcast, an exploration of the past, present, and future of material science and engineering. My name is Andrew Falkowski, and I'm coming to you from the Materialism Bunker with my co-host, Taylor Sparks, and our audio producer, Jared Duffy. This has been designated as a COOF-free zone. There'll be no coughing, no sneezing here, as we protect ourselves from the, the outside scary world. I just hope our listeners realize that we are risking life and limb to bring you a quality episode today. That's how much we care about you. Indeed. Yeah, so we got kicked out of our, our normal audio studio, so we apologize if the audio is not up to our usual quality. We assure you that uh, as soon as we get back in the audio studio, this will be this will be fixed. So Jared is off the hook for this episode, uh, but rest assured, once we get back, it's all on him again. That said, it has been a crazy, crazy month and a crazy couple weeks. Obviously, coronavirus is on everybody's mind. But last week, we also here in Utah had an earthquake, pretty significant, 5.7. It shook me out of bed in the morning. Um, it's damaged some buildings. It was just a crazy time. How about you guys? What's been happening in your world? Yeah, I mean, so spring break went off to a really good start. I was <laughs> excited to return back in the semester. I had a lot of interesting things that I had planned for my research podcast in school. And then all of a sudden, I get the email that school is closed. And then chaos ensues as professors are trying to move classes online. And then the day that I was supposed to resume classes, there's an earthquake and classes get canceled. <laughs> it's just wild. Picture the professor who struggles to get the la- like the, the projector started now trying to teach completely online. It has been hectic for everyone involved. So I've been casting my class from my uh, shed in my backyard with my dog and my eight-year-old running by with like a rake. So it's a bizarre time to be teaching. It's a bizarre time to be learning, but thanks for being here with us. Mm-hmm. And in light of what's going on, we decided to frame our episode around that. We decided that, you know, what sort of materials are involved with trying to fight viruses? So, you know, back when I was at home during spring break, when this was just starting up, there was all the panic. And so everyone was rushing out. And so I went to Costco to get some shampoo. I see this lady coming out with just two massive carts full of toilet paper and hand sanitizer. She's not going to get caught unawares, man. She's ready. She's ready. <laughs> But, you know, not all hand sanitizer actually works to kill viruses. I heard that's got to be 60% alcohol, right? Mm-hmm. And even that doesn't kill all types of, of you know, right. pathogens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mostly that's targeted more towards bacteria. So I guess first let's get into what a virus actually is sure. for those who are unaware. So a virus is a long molecule of DNA or RNA that's surrounded by a protein coat. And some will have an outer lipid layer as well. This is just a fat layer with proteins outside of it. And these aren't technically alive, right? It's just strand of DNA and what it ends up doing is it gets into the cell and it attaches and then it uses cell mechanisms to reproduce. And it's almost like a little tiny like molecular motor that just does a job over and over and over that went haywire because it's taking advantage of our cells to do that job. It's pretty Mm -hmm. crazy. So what you want to do is you want to break down this protein coat and so because it's a fat typically a soap ends up being the best method of doing that. Now, you can also use peroxides or chloride solutions, but those are very harsh on the skin. And so for those going out and hoarding hand sanitizer, I saw these two brothers in some 
southern state. I think it was Tennessee. They bought 18,000 bottles oh, of hand yeah. sanitizer and hoarded it. Yeah, we saw that. Now, thankfully, the, the AG came in and confiscated it. Pretty crazy. They did a, an interview with the New York Times. Like, what did you think the response was going to be to this, man? Pretty wild. Mm-hmm. They tried to reframe the PR, and they're like, oh, we were going to give it away. It's like, yeah. you got caught. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we hope everyone else is calming down a little bit. And one important thing that we can all do, and we know that you've heard this to death, is wash your hands. And so this episode is going to be all about what exactly is going on there and, and the material that makes that possible, which is soap, right? Soap, we kind of take it for granted. that it's just always been there. And you don't think of it as a highly engineered material until you learn about its history and the developments that have gone into it. And it actually is a quite highly engineered material. So... We're going to go all the way back, way, way back to its first inception, the discovery of soap. And the earliest record that we know of goes all the way back to 2500 BC in Babylon, right? They found this recipe for it on a tablet there. It says, you know, the Sumerian tablet is especially noteworthy for two reasons. First, that their procedure for soap preparation gives detailed instructions on the quantity in which the two starting materials, oil and wood ash, have to be mixed prior to heating, this this presents the oldest known record of a chemical reaction. And second, the script contains the only record from a pre-Christian era on the use of soap for washing textiles. That blew me away. I had just always assumed that soap was one of these ancient things that people had used for a very long time. And so I wasn't surprised to hear that it had existed 2,500 BC. What blew me away is that was the only mention of it until, you know, what, like 400 or whatever it is uh, after Christ. So the Sumerians, they also used it for medicinal applications, right? The tablet was specifying for washing clothes and getting soil out of them. But, you know, they also, these other stone tablets that they'd find would describe additives for the medical practice. I see. So the next next sort of major milestone is that the Egyptians, they discovered the uh, papyrus ebers, which is dating around about 600 B.C., and this documents that the Egyptians utilized animal fats or vegetable oils and soda ash, um to make soaps for themselves. And so actually after this, the cleaning effect of soap was lost for several centuries. Right? You see the Gauls, uh, which are Celtic tribes, and the Germans, they used soap for beauty purposes. Essentially, <laughs> they made this from goat tallow and beechwood ash, and they used it as hair pomade. No way, okay. And interesting, so the, when the Romans come into this region, they see them doing this, and so they adopt like, this. like, dude, that's pretty sweet. But not for, <laughs> not for cleaning purposes initially. They're also using it for to style their hair. So I'm just picturing like taking like a big gob of soap and using that just to like to stick your hair to make it a style that's literally what's going on here well the soap that they were using wasn't the kind that we have today right the type we have today is highly engineered and has been optimized in order to have certain yeah. properties right this is still them taking just, just a viscous gooey process. yeah very you know, just of kind soap. of a goo almost similar to the in texture to the pomade that we have today it's only in the second century ad that the cleaning effect of soap is resurrected by the greek physician galenus and so he points out that soap is not only capable of healing, but that is also able to remove soil from the body and clothing. However, even though he points this out, there's no indication that the Romans ever used soap for cleaning purposes. So it didn't really catch on necessarily. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting. In all these cases of prehistoric uses of soap, there's always these two key things. It's usually a fat, right? Some sort of fat or oil. And then there's always something else they mix with it. So soda ash, right? From different, mm-hmm. burning different trees. So we're going to dive into that. What exactly is going into soap, right? Um, in these early days, they would use uh, quicklime was one thing that they would use. If you're familiar with the show, we've talked about quicklime before. That's just calcium oxide, right? In the cement episode, we talked about it. That is added as what's called the caustic component. We'll talk about what that's doing in a moment. 
And then, so the Arabs were the first to use uh, quicklime as opposed to other things, right? Like soda ash from burning trees. Um, and that goes back to the 7th century AD, right? This was an important advance in the technology of soap, right? It allowed them to do different types of soaps than had been done previously. These are what are called hard soaps, right? So you can have your soft soap, and we're familiar with this, right? You can have your bar soap, but it's more common when you're washing dishes, you have the liquid soap, right? So what are the, some of the differences here? It has to do with the caustic component, right? The caustic, the, the alkali or the caustic component can come from different sources. In modern soap, the, one of the, the sources can be potassium hydroxide, right? This will make soft soaps like you might use in your dishwasher, liquid soaps. Um, what it does is it has a greater solubility. Therefore, it's in a, in a, in a liquid state. But if you use sodium hydroxide, that's going to make your bar soaps, right? So if you hear the word lye, if you've ever seen Fight Club or anything, lye, what they're talking about is the alkali, right? And this is usually referring to sodium hydroxide, right? So when they're using calcium oxide, it's not surprising that it's in line with this. It's, it's more caustic, so it's making a harder soap. Mm -hmm. So they call this the saponification process. So first, you have your fat. Remember back to our discussion of chocolate, we were talking about the glyceride molecules and cocoa butter. What does that look like, right? These are fork-like structures that have these long chains that are coming off the ends of them. Then you combine that with your caustic agent, the sodium hydroxide, potassium hydroxide, and essentially what happens is you undergo saponification, which is the hydrolysis of fats and oils, and you yield a glycerol and a crude soap. The crude soap being what you're actually interested in. Yeah, so like you picture your, your trident, right? Your, your fork molecule, right? Mm -hmm. And there's that main backbone, which has CH2s, right? Connected to these longer chains going on the side. Essentially adding this caustic component chops off the tongs of the fork, right? Leaving right. just the end part now with hydroxide groups. And that is glycerol. It's CH2OH, and there's three of those connected to one another. Mm -hmm. And then what gets left off on the other side is that long organic molecule, right? Which can mm -hmm. be different types depending on the type of fat you use. But with a sodium on the other side, if you used NaOH, right? Or right. calcium, right? It has that alkali member on the other end. And that's the key component is that these types of molecules are two-part. They've got one part which is going to be soluble in oil and one part that's going to be soluble in water. So after the saponification reaction occurs, typically there will be things left over and that can be sodium chloride, sodium hydroxide that was unreacted or this glycerol that Dr. Sparks mentioned. And so they'll typically remove these impurities by boiling the crude soap curds in water and then re-precipitating the soap with some salt. So they add salt to it and these things actually come out of solution, huh? Interesting. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to the, the molecule, right? I said that you've got this hydrophilic head and a hydrophobic tail. Why is that good for anything? Why does that give us the soap properties that we know and love? Well, if you've ever made salad dressing, then you, it's a pretty good explanation of what's happening here. If you've ever bought a, a bottle of, say, Italian dressing you notice that it might be actually separated. The oil's up on top. You've got the non-oily stuff down below it. And you have to shake that thing up before you use it, right? So if you took that exact same salad dressing and you added soap to it, and then you shook it up, you'd find that it wouldn't separate out again very easily. Because what happens is that the little soap molecules, remember, they have two parts, hydrophobic side and a hydrophilic side. So the hydrophilic side is going to attach to the water. The hydrophobic side is going to attach to your oil. And it's going to surround it. It literally surrounds it all around and makes these little tiny emulsions, right? It forms an emulsion. We talked about this on our second episode with Chet Boxy when he described green surfactants, right? This allows you to break up this big blocky layer of oil and disperse it solubilized in the other layer, right? 
So why is that important for cleaning purposes? Well, if you've got a smudge of grease on your pan or on your finger or your face, right, and you then rub soap on it, it's going to break up that oil by surrounding it. Just picture a bunch of little, like, piranhas swallowing around this thing, breaking up to a smaller piece, and that's essentially forming into emulsion, which can now be washed away. They're really quite cool materials and how they're able to have this dual purpose and an engineered dual purpose in order to both function with water and oil. And so now that we've kind of explained how soap works and how these crude formulations came about, we're going to go to a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to finish off the history of soap, and then we're going to dive into how modern soaps and synthetic soaps were created. The Materialism Podcast is brought to you by MatMatch. MatMatch is a phenomenal online resource. It helps engineers find the materials that they need for the products that they care about. It's an online marketplace where you can find pretty much whatever you're looking for, from steels to aluminum to chemicals. They have quite a bit. You can search by property. You can search by form. They have really great guided searches where they show you what types of materials are used for different applications. It's a phenomenally useful resource, and it is free to use. Check out MatMatch today and find the exact material that you need for your next application. The Materials and Podcast is also sponsored by Materials Today. You can visit materialstoday.com or elsevere.com to find out more about their journals, books, conferences, and related programs. We've described a little bit about the chemical reaction that makes some of these ancient soaps turn into soaps that can now remove dirt, um, clean germs, do the job that we want them to do. But there's still a lot of development that went from that process heading towards what we use today. So the next step would be to describe the Arabs and what they did with soap, soap making in Spain in the 7th century AD. Right, it was the Arabs in the 7th century who introduced the idea of soap making to Spain. But long before that, actually, going back to the 2nd century, the Mediterranean region became a famous center for the manufacture of soaps. And this was simply because of the agricultural growth of olive trees and the production of barilla, which is a soda ash from the native sea plants. Uh, essentially, their raw material situation was especially favorable for them. Yeah, I did some searching about this, that barilla. Uh, so it's a type of plant that grows there, and it's known to be an especially salt-tolerant plant, right? And because of that, it actually builds up a pretty large amount of sodium carbonate in, its, in the plant fibers themselves, which is why when you burn it, you're left over with this large amounts of sodium carbonate, and we need that sodium as the caustic agent. So it's interesting that being there right by the sea gave them a strategic advantage in producing soap because they were literally accumulating it from the natural resource there, which is pretty neat. Right, and having all the olive trees there gave them a pretty easy, a growable source of yeah. uh, oils and fats that they could use. Now, the development of commercial soaps was slower in other European regions because they could not compete with the quality of the products that were being produced in the Mediterranean they had to use things like tallow or marine oils or potash, which is... Uh, tallow is just animal fat, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, or other sort of potassium-bearing materials, right? They didn't have the high-quality materials that the Mediterranean did. And so they had to wait for a number of technical advances to come about before they could even hope to compete. And when you say wait, they waited a long time. A long time. <laughs> the big innovations came in the second half of the 18th century. So, you know, millennia go by where... The Mediterranean really has the, the market cornered for the major soap production. But then some things happened. So there was three key things. The first 
was Chevreau's elucidation of the structure of fats, right? We've been describing this sort of trident sort of shape of the fat, but it, that wasn't known beforehand. Once you start to understand the, the shape of these different types of fats, you can begin the process of engineering them, right? The second key innovation was LeBlanc's development of the technical process for soda ash manufacturing, which I'm going to describe in just a minute. And the third one was the development of an improved transportation network so you can get, you know, supply chains basically in place. You get large quantities of low-cost tropical vegetable oils to the places which are now producing their own soda ash. And next thing you know, you can start making soap wherever you want. So I want to talk a few, uh, just a little bit about this LeBlanc's process for making soda ash. It's pretty amazing. So this came about during the French Revolution, right before it. It was King Louis XVI of France in, in 1783. He and the French Academy of Sciences, they offered a prize of 2,400 livres, which I assume was a huge amount of money, right, for any sort of method that could produce alkali from sea salt, sodium chloride. Obviously, sea salt, sodium chloride is everywhere, but what they need is sodium carbonate or some sort of alkali from it, right? And so in 1791, Nicolas LeBlanc, he was a physician to Louis-Philippe II, Duke of Orleans. He patented a solution, and the same year, he built the first LeBlanc plant for the Duke in St. Denis, and this was able to take, you know, 320 tons of, it was able to produce 320 tons of soda per year. But what's crazy is he was denied his prize money because the French Revolution kicked off. This was not the time to be inheriting huge amounts of money in France. Anyways, it's pretty slick. You start with salt, you add sulfuric acid, H2SO4. This produces Na2SO4, so sodium sulfate, and a byproduct of hydrochloric acid. You discard the hydrochloric acid, you take the sodium sulfate, you add to it coke, right, carbon. That's going to produce some carbon dioxide, but it's also going to produce sodium sulfide. And the final step is you take limestone, calcium carbonate, and react it with the sodium sulfide, and you get calcium sulfate and Na2CO3, the sodium carbonate which they needed to make soap. Some unfortunate timing for sure on his, getting his reward for that process, but his process would later be placed by an even better process, the Solvay process in 1861, which used ammonia. And this one was great because the only principal byproduct of it was calcium chloride, which could be easily washed away with water. Now, these inventions of these processes were key because it enabled faster manufacturing of these caustic agents that they needed to create soap, which would enable it to be produced in more regions around the world. So this is sounding pretty good so far. You've got the caustic, you've got a good supply chain for lots of the oils and fats to make these things. So you could just keep on making soap and just be, everything would be hunky-dory. We'd be using these same soaps today, but we aren't. We use different soaps today. What was the big problem? Why did they switch away from these, Andrew? So the reason that we've shifted away from these natural soaps has to do with the advent of clothing being made from synthetic fibers. Things like cupro, rayon, acetate. Sweet, sweet polyester. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the problem was that soap molecules, when used in hard water or used in very sensitive um, fibers, they don't interact well, right? If it's in hard water, the minerals in the hard water prevent the soap reaction from taking place, and so it doesn't clean as well. At the same time, you could also potentially damage this fabric. So there became a, a real need for some sort of new type of soap that was less damaging and wouldn't be affected by hard the presence of hard water. So just to put a timeline on this, we're roughly around the early 19, 19, uh, mm -hmm. 1900s, right? So 1924, rayon becomes a fabric that we're starting to use pretty heavily in clothing, and we don't have a great soap to clean it. So it's not surprising that 1928 rolls around, and H. Birch and his co-workers they were the first to come up with a new type of soap. And instead of using the animal or the vegetable oils from before, 
their start was using fatty alcohol as the starting material, right? And the reason they're using these is that fatty alcohols are what we call amphipathic, which means that they have a hydrophilic end and an oleophilic end, similar to soaps. The main difference is that they no longer have a sodium or a potassium uh, atom at the end of there, which could bond or be affected by hard water. Gotcha. And so because of that, they don't undergo any sort of ionic reaction with hard water. So figuring out that this works is the first step. Now you've got to make it economical. And that comes, you know, to that end came the pioneering work of uh, W. Schrauth and Deutsche Hydrowerke, <laughs> right? Succeeded in converting fatty acid esters into these fatty alcohols via catalytic reduction with hydrogen at high pressure, right? So now you've got a way to produce these fatty alcohols, right? By this route, synthetic detergents from natural, replenishable raw materials could be produced that had properties superior to that of classical soaps. And so they were the first to bring this to the market in 1932 by the Henkel Company in oh, Germany. That's still around today. That's a major yeah. company today. And then one year later, 1933, we see Procter & Gamble in the USA bring out a similar product. So we now move into an era where we can begin to design or cleaning products for different applications and specialize them to be the most effective. Oh gosh, and I have a terrible story here, right? So I always joke with my wife, like a surfactant's a surfactant. Like I'm the chemist, I understand this. Like I was so wrong. I would always tell her, like it doesn't matter what kind of soap you use, it just does its job. And I was spending a summer in China once during my PhD and I had to wash my clothes and I didn't have any laundry detergent. So I was just like, it doesn't matter. I'll just use some, I don't know, shampoo or body wash or whatever it was, dude bubbles for like there were consequences there was bubbles like going down the hall like it made the hugest mess so i gotta like you know eat some crow and recognize that a surfactant is not a surfactant you can engineer these to do exactly what you want like you might want lots of emulsifying you might want not as much and in this era basically in the modern era our grandparents forward we've really started to design and engineer soaps to do very specific things right uh, among the synthetic surfactants Alkyl benzene sulfonates, or ABS as they're called, occupy a leading position regarding the volume requirements. They're one of the most important detergent surfactants. By the 1950s, soap in its natural form as we earlier described it had been almost entirely replaced as the active ingredient in detergents. Really, it started to become just a foam regulator, just controlling no how way. much foam you're going to get. And what it was replaced by was this molecule called tetrapropylene benzene sulfonate, TPS. Now, it shouldn't be forgotten that the original idea behind surfactants and soap was to remove soil. And so as we started to use these and they got pumped out into the environment after use, they started Ooh, to notice some yeah, environmental Yeah, it's going to interact with the soil dangers. in the environment. Right, right. If it's designed to remove it, how's yeah. that going to affect it? And so concerns over the environmental impacts of uh, various detergent chemicals actually led a shift in the industry to move towards environmentally friendly options. You can actually check out our second episode where we interviewed Chet Boxley, as we mentioned earlier, who talked about green surfactants and how he's able to create environmentally friendly ones that are not only healthy for you, but the environment. Yeah, they're not made with petroleum. He starts with sugar molecules and is able to make a hydrophobic, hydrophilic end, which is apparently tricky to do. <laughs> In response yeah. to the desire to be more environmentally friendly, we get to the 1960s and the tetrapropylene benzene sulfonate uh, is replaced um, by a biologically soft easily degradable linear alkyl benzene sulfonate in Europe and the USA and Japan. And so it's interesting to see how environmental effects have shifted our design of various soaping materials. And it's always important to keep in mind that whatever you're getting rid of with this material, or there's always an end result of that material, and you have to factor that into the design. So 
We hope you've enjoyed this episode and that the next time that you're washing your hands for a full 20 seconds with soap to kill those coronaviruses that are all over your hands, uh, that you'll think about the awesome engineering material that soap is and how far it's come. Yeah, I mean, the one of the main highlights of this whole pandemic is that people are finally washing their hands. For a while, <laughs> I've floated the idea of just like kind of camping out in the bathroom with a sign that says this guy didn't wash his hands. And then if somebody doesn't, just follow them out at a distance with like an arrow. Social pressure. I guarantee you'll get some hand washing. Get him, get Before we go, I'd just like to mention two articles that we use to find the content for this episode. The first is Veerbeek and his historical review of surfactants and consumer products. And the second is Oluwatian with quality of soaps using different oil blends. We couldn't have put together such a great episode without them. And I just want to do a quick call out to one of our listeners, Daniel Byrne. We've actually been hosting this uh, through Pinecast, and Pinecast has the option to have a tip jar. And we've been putting the link in the show notes without really thinking about it. And he actually donated this week, and that's really helpful because, honestly, we produce this podcast because we're passionate about material science and we like to make this resource available. But it is a pretty big effort. So thank you so much for helping support the show, Daniel. And if anybody else is out there that wants to help support it, you can find the link in our show notes. Uh, and on that topic, if you have more questions or feedback, we are always happy to hear your feedback. You can find us at materialism.podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on the, the r slash material subreddit very often. You can see our Instagram page with at materialism.podcast. We would love for you to connect with us. If you got an idea for an episode, if you want some of our sweet, sweet stickers and swag, send us an awesome suggestion or a funny meme, and we just might feature it and send you some sweet stuff. Lastly, we'd like to give a shout out to the people who make the music possible. That's Alphabot and Colabyte. Check them out. They make really cool music, and they'd appreciate it if you did. You can find them on Spotify and Bandcamp. Till the next episode, we hope that everyone stays safe and healthy and exercises social distancing. We'll see you next time. The inventors of fire, electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, silk, cotton, the makers of tools, the captors of lightning, the architect, the engineer, the musician, are all beneficiaries of the materials of this world and are bound only by their imaginations in manipulating those materials. 